Well, this Sunday and for the next three Sundays, we'll be talking about marriage here at State Road. We'll be doing a deep dive into the most classic text on marriage in the Bible, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. But before we dive into those verses, let me acknowledge just for a moment that marriage is an awfully difficult thing to talk about in the church. And that is so for a lot of reasons. There is a great diversity of feeling in this room as we entertain the prospect of talking about marriage for four Sundays in a row. For starters, past experiences with marriage or present experiences in a difficult marriage have left many of us with feelings of failure, deep hurt, maybe even embarrassment, and the fear, the very real fear, that other believers might be privately looking on with a spirit of judgment on our circumstances. Some of you are believers, but your spouse is not, and so that's hard. For some of us, the culture wars have left us feeling a little exhausted and war-weary, and biblical notions about what constitutes marriage and what doesn't, as well as the structure and purposes of marriage. All of it has become quite controversial in the America of 2020. The rancorous national conversation about what is and isn't marriage has left us with little appetite for more. Some of you are single or widowed. And the topic of marriage may not even seem particularly relevant to you in this season of your life. I imagine you wondering sarcastically when a church is going to do a sermon series on how to do singleness well. And how would all the married people like to sit through that for four Sundays in a row? For some, the topic of marriage is difficult because you personally long to be married. But that hasn't happened for you yet, and privately, you worry if it ever will. And all this talk about marriage only serves to highlight the feeling you have that you're on the outside looking in. And I have to concede that the church, I'm not speaking about State Road here necessarily, but the church generally has a poor track record of serving single people well. That is true. One more example. This sermon series on marriage might be hard for you if, for example, your husband is the pastor. <laughs> And uh, you're concerned that even though he's a wonderful guy and ruggedly handsome, <laughs> he might just mine your personal experiences for sermon illustrations. And even though he is just a great guy, generally, how is he going to talk about managing conflict in marriage like he's never screamed at you in a Denny's parking lot because you left a tip that he thought was exorbitant? <laughs> Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one, and definitely not Josh Tate. Marriage is a tough thing to talk about because it is a real gritty kind of a thing. And it is very often a place of deep hurt or deep longing. You see, for some of you, this series will be hard because you're sitting all by yourself in the pew. But for others, it'll be hard because you're sitting right next to your spouse, who knows you warts and all. 
However, even though this conversation has the potential to be difficult for some, I think it is necessary that we take up this topic at this time. Because there seems to be little doubt that the enemy is targeting marriages and sowing error in our hearts. We need to speak truth to our hearts about marriage. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage. In fact, I read one theologian this past week who said that really the whole story of the gospel is about a marriage. And all of our marriages are just little stories within that great overarching story. Marriage is the story that we're living in. And even though the Bible has a lot to say about marriage, there are no other passages address the topic in such a direct and extensive way as Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. It's kind of the classic text on marriage. And as much as I like to be novel and original, I just thought, why reinvent the wheel? Let's go to where everybody else goes. This is the classic text. Let's do a deep dive. Let's really explore this together. The latter half of chapter 5 of Ephesians, which contains the verses we'll be studying over these four Sundays, and also the first part of chapter 6 all flow from verse 21. He's not speaking about marriage here. He's speaking about a general principle for Christian life. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. And Paul is going to expand on this idea of mutual submission within the body out of reverence for Christ by demonstrating how that principle works in three different relationships that believers commonly experience between husband and wife, parent and child, and slaves and masters. And it's like when I was in college, I, I went to Houghton College, and when I got there, I had my first meeting with my academic counselor, the guy who's supposed to sort of guide me through the college process, get me my classes, make sure I was on track towards my goals. And his name was Professor Black. I sat down with Professor Black, and he said, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to get through college with as little science and math as possible. <laughs> and he went, I get it. I understand. And he helped me do that, actually, if you can believe it. He was on board. But I did have to take some math, and I did have to take some science. And he said, there's just no way around it. You're going to have to take one of these upper-level science courses. And so I signed up for geology because I was like, rock. Even I can understand rock. <laughs> but it was actually quite hard. Uh, Dr. Trexler, Dr. Trexler was, my, was my professor for geology. Sue Forbes. Okay. <laughs> and the way they did the class was we'd have a, a section where we'd go in and we'd gain some instruction. It was like a lecture format. And then that very same week, we'd have to go to the lab. So we'd learn about certain things relating to geology, and then we'd go to the lab where we would apply in a hands-on kind of a way the principles that we had learned. And that's the way we're going to break this out. That's the way Paul approaches this in Ephesians 5. He says, here's a principle, and now here's the lab of marriage where you work the principle out. And that's basically what we're going to try and do here over the course of this series. We're going to talk about some stuff on Sunday mornings, and then we're going to come back Saturday nights for a lab time. Let's call it lab, marriage lab. We'll call it that. And so I really encourage you to come. So verse 21, let's read the text right now. We'll be, we'll be reading this text every Sunday. Verse 21. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we go into the lab. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Boy, there is an awful lot in there, and there's a lot that's really hard to talk about, a lot that's tough. And over the next few Sundays, and this morning as well, we're going to kind of break that out and look at it from a few different directions. We're going to be talking about Principles for Managing Conflict in Marriage. We're going to be talking about sexual intimacy in marriage. And we're going to be talking about marriage as a ministry team. But this morning, I want to talk about something more foundational than all that. This morning, we're not going to get much into application, I don't think. Um, but just kind of lay the groundwork, an important truth that I think all Christians need to have in their minds before we can even go one step forward in talking about marriage. And that is this, the basic idea that I want us all to walk away with from these verses this morning is that marriage is an act of creation. It's a divine invention. This truth is going to make a stable platform on which we can build all the ideas that follow, but you have to start with this place. You might be able to argue, as many theologians do, that the most basic and foundational doctrine of the Christian faith is the doctrine of creation. Our understanding of human significance is inextricably linked to no questions of origin and purpose. And for the Christian, our answers to those sorts of questions flow significantly out of our Bible-shaped understanding that God is the creator. And when we go all the way back to Genesis, to the creation account, we see, we see something very interesting as it relates to our current study on the topic of marriage. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, over the span of six days, God created out of nothing everything that is. By the force of his will and by the power of his, his word, he spoke the world into existence. And in the order of creation, we see a beautiful pattern emerge. Each successive work of creation is more glorious than the last and more laden with significance. And so the final work of creation is, in actuality, the pinnacle of creation. 
And what is the final act of creation in Genesis? I think would, most of us would answer that it's humanity. Or maybe we'd be more specific and say Eve was the final work of creation. The very pinnacle was woman. However, I would take it even a step further and make the argument that God's final act of creation, the pinnacle of his created order, was the joining of Adam and Eve into one flesh. The final person created in creation was not Adam or Eve. It was Adam Eve. <laughs> That's what he did. Mankind, the Bible tells us, were made in the image of God, which means in part that man was made at the first to image forth God in the midst of his creation. Mankind, made in the image and likeness of God, was meant to reflect and image forth God's glory, his nature, in the midst of the new created order. And this is why God said that it was not good for Adam to be alone. That is so because God himself is three in one. And so all by himself, Adam did not reflect the nature of our three in one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the perfect oneness of the Godhead. So God looked on Adam and said, this isn't good because he doesn't yet look like me and he's designed on purpose to image me forth. He's made in my image. And so he also created Eve. And then he joined Adam and Eve together into a one flesh union. And this expression, one flesh, basically means that they became one body, one unit, one new person. Prior to that joining together, they were separate entities. They were Adam and Eve. But afterwards, they became Adam Eve. That's what we'll say. They became one flesh. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the verse, by the way, that Paul quotes right in the midst of these verses from Ephesians 5. And we're right to say that this points us to the truth that marriage is a divine invention. This joining together, not only of Adam and Eve, but also every marriage, is a creative act of God. And I feel very comfortable saying that because that is what Jesus said. Jesus himself described marriage that way in Mark 10, where he also quotes Genesis. He says, but from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Do you see what Jesus says there about marriage? He says it's God who created it. When Sarah and I got married, I am tempted in my own human pride to say, I did that. <laughs> I made that happen. And sometimes I do stand back and marvel that Sarah chose me. But in truth, Jesus says God joined Sarah and I together. That's a, that's a mysterious statement. And there's a lot of questions that then flow into our minds and hang off of that. But let's not go there right now. Let's just first dwell on this fact that Jesus says that every marriage is a divine act of creation. God creates it. 
So this view directly contradicts views properly, popularly put forward in our culture and in social sciences about the origins of marriage. Just the idea that as civilizations emerged and there were issues of property transferal, inheritance, social security, and solidarity, that marriage then emerged as a social construct due to its benefits to man. This is kind of the view that's popularly held among sociologists and those in the social sciences study these kinds of things. That maybe sometime in the early Bronze Age or perhaps even earlier than that, marriage emerged to form alliances between different groups, provide social standing and protection for women, and safeguard inheritance issues by ensuring the legitimacy of offspring. But the Bible says that that's not how it happened. The Bible says that marriage did not evolve out of human wisdom, but was a product of divine invention. In fact, the Bible says that there are three institutions that were created by God. Just three. The Bible doesn't talk about schools. The Bible doesn't talk about the DMV. <laughs> the Bible doesn't talk about a lot of institutions that we have in our society. But it does say a lot about three institutions, and those are the state, marriage, and the church. Marriage is something that the Bible clearly and emphatically states from beginning to end was created by God. It's a divine invention, and that's very important to recognize. Because if we start with the premise that marriage first emerged and was adopted among human beings because of its benefits to those people at that time, what can we then do to marriage? We can then shape it and tailor it to our needs today. If, however, we recognize that marriage is a divine invention, certain truths then flow from that. I think three, I think I, I, we may be able to come up with more, but as I was sitting in my study wrestling through this, I came up with three differences that this makes in the ways Christians understand marriage. And the first is this, because God invented the institution of marriage, it is governed by a God-given structure God-given laws, and God-given purposes. And, and we see this if we take it not the invention of marriage, but the invention of some tool. After college, my brother Job and I, we both worked for a man, and he uh, was, it was like a party supply business. So we would drive all over the state setting up those big tents for weddings and stuff. And he had a fleet of trucks. And some of them were diesel, and some of them were regular gas. And one day, Job hopped in a truck, my brother Job, and he was going to drive and take it on a job, but it was out of gas, so he pulled up to a gas station and put, it was either put regular gas in a diesel or he put diesel in a regular gas truck. And when he fired that sucker up, it was bad. <laughs> it was real bad. Now, that, that truck was designed. It was invented. Somebody, some engineer somewhere put an engine in there and decided what kind of fuel that engine would use, and you can't just break his laws. You can't say, well, water's way cheaper than gas. I'm going to fill that tank with water. You can't do that because it won't work. You can't even put another kind of fuel in that truck, or else it'll blow up. The thing will start smoking. That's what Job found. You can't just change things on something that was created. You have to consult the creator for his structure, his laws, his purposes for the thing. And that is true for marriage. I think this is especially a very, 
difficult truth to speak into our culture at this particular time. When we are uh, taking a serious step very lightly, I think, as a culture, in redesigning marriage without consulting the creator of marriage. So that's principle number one. That's the first truth that flows out of this. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking to the creator of marriage to help us with things that are commonly difficult in marriage, help us navigate them. The second thing that flows out of this truth that marriage is a created thing is that then we derive the definition of what it is to marry. And we get that basically from the word cleave, which doesn't appear in the version that I quoted. My version says, hold fast to your wife. But I like the word cleave better. It's kind of an old-fashioned English word. It's not a word we use a whole lot. But it gets closer, I think, to the meaning of the original biblical text. Cleave in the Bible, the word, means something similar to glue. You shall be glued to one another with a permanent bond. And so from, from this idea of cleaving, leaving your father and your mother and being joined to your wife in this sort of a fashion, we then derive from that a definition of what it is to marry. It's a public, permanent, binding, legal union. It's also the beginning of something brand new. When it says there that you leave father and mother and you're joined together with your spouse, that is saying that something brand new has been born. Uh, Much of married life is about working out the family that you came from. I think many of us are just shaped by the home in which we grew and we're uh, shaped and formed there and then we are brought into a marriage and all of a sudden, Bam, we see these two different homes in conflict. (laughs) The merging is not always clean, but sometimes it's quite messy. And by the way, that can be uh, from two different perspectives. It can be that way because you love the family that you came from, and you want your new family to be just like the home you were raised in. That exists. Other times, though, you are governed by a hatred of the home that you were raised in. And you're just as much under the sway of that household as if you loved it. Everything you're deciding for your family is based as a negative reaction to the home in which you were raised. Both are very bad things to bring into the marriage, particularly. And really, I think this talk about the two becoming one, leaving behind and being joined together in something new, isn't that also very similar to what we hear the Bible describing us as a new creation when we come to Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come, you are a new creation. I think marriage is understood as a new creation. Josh and Sarah is way different than Josh Sarah. (laughs) Just like Adam and Eve is going to be different than Adam Eve. When Josh and Sarah got married, we brought with us all kinds of weird baggage, all kinds of weird things that had formed us. But that day, our anniversary is the birthday of a new thing. And I think we need to understand marriage that that way. That because it was an act of creation, a new thing, it's the beginning of something new. It's not a continuation of old family dynamics. 
you are not at the mercy of those currents that have flowed in our lives. Now, the reason why I, before I derived all of that about the definition of marriage, public, where do you see that in the word cleave, Josh? I don't see it there. Permanent, binding, legal. I, I think that this is the very first time that covenant ever comes up in the Bible, and then the Bible goes on to explain the nature of covenant. I like to say that the Bible explains itself. We look to the Bible to explain what is meant. And so God's first mention of covenant is really this marriage union between Adam and Eve. And then he goes on to explain that in depth later on. And then in the Bible, every time we see God's people entering into a covenant, it has these markers. It's public. It's permanent. It's binding. It's legal. And so we can apply these things fairly, I think, to the covenant of marriage as it first emerges into the Bible. And this idea of um, coming to marriage with that idea that it is those things is deeply countercultural. Just very, very strange for Americans even to adopt today. I find it very interesting. We were talking about this a little bit last night in our membership class. We were, uh, had an evening over at the Blackstone's house with Julie and Skyler, and we were talking about membership, beginning that process. And I was talking a little bit about how the meaning of the word community is changing in our culture today. T- today we use the word community to describe a like-minded group, Right? Like, you might be really into pickup trucks, and so you go online to find a community of like-minded truck enthusiasts, and you can talk about parts and how you do this and that. We go online to find communities with people who share common interests or people who uh, agree with us on some matter. And we call that community that we belong to. And in almost every respect, this is the opposite of what our what has traditionally been understood about community. The old meaning of community says that community is not that we have the same interests or opinions, but that we live in the same place and had to negotiate our differences. That sounds a lot more like my marriage to me than looking for a group that's just exactly like me. So in the old sense, community was marked not by uniformity and agreement, but by a working out, a negotiation of differences in the interests of us being here together. Marriage is much more like the old meaning of community than the new one that's emerging. And the new one that's emerging is really reveals a lot about the way our culture looks at other relationships into which we enter. In other words... I, I've never actually had a problem with anybody who wrote their own vows. But sometimes when people write their own vows for weddings, which is not a bad thing, I'm not critiquing the practice, um, sometimes they talk about their vows in terms of how they feel about the other person. Like they'll say, uh, I, I am so glad that I found you because I love you, you love me, this is good. I actually think that that's contrary to the way Christian vows have traditionally been written. Because Christian vows are not about how I feel about you today. It's a promise 
to be with you regardless how I feel. <laughs> it's, a, it's an acknowledgement that this is going to be hard, and what I'm entering into, I'm not entering into because you give me butterflies. You do, maybe, but I'm not going to say that's the basis of my vow. I'm not like reaching out to a community online that shares, that gets me. I'm more saying we're together now. We're glued together. And this is going to be about working out and negotiating our differences rather than us just going perfectly, swimmingly together. Uh, I remember, I've shared this with some of you in the past, that when Sarah and I first went to premarital counseling, Dr. Mike Lastoria at Houghton basically told us we shouldn't get married. <laughs> he said, some couples are like this, and Sarah and I do this all the time, um, because he sat there in his office, and he did the hand motions. He said, some couples are just like this, but you two are like this. And he didn't say don't get married, but he basically said you should, you should think about it. <laughs> and he wasn't wrong, by the way. Sarah and I have been like this a lot. But what I have found is not that, that marriage doesn't, isn't necessarily this. When you agree to be glued together. I remember one of the most important conversations Sarah and I ever had prior to getting married. We had just gone on a date to the pizza barn at Houghton College. And we were walking down a dirt road that went down the Genesee River. And as we were talking, we were not yet even engaged. She just said, I will never divorce you. Never. And I thought, how can you even say that? <laughs> and the reason why I think Sarah could say that is because she was committed first to her commitment to Jesus. And again, these are some of those difficult things that are to speak out loud into a room, because I know that here in the room there are divorce stories, and I don't mean to heap pain on top of all, everything else. I just want to say that when it comes to this issue of being cleaved, of being glued together, it is not saying we are joined together because we have that perfect bond. It is saying we are mutually submitted to our God. Henry Nouwen once wrote, Community is, first of all, a quality of the heart. It grows from the spiritual knowledge that we are alive, not for ourselves, but for one another. Community is the fruit of our capacity to make the interests of others more important than our own. The question, therefore, is not how can we make community, but how can we develop and nurture giving hearts? And we're going to, next week, we're going to talk about managing conflict in marriage. And I don't mean to jump ahead, but basically the problem at the root of every marriage is our own selfishness, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness in me, self-centeredness in Sarah. Every conflict that arises flows back to that original source. And what's difficult is to develop what Nowen talks about here. How can we develop and nurture giving hearts? The last thing that's here for us to see about the observation that marriage is a created thing is this, like all creation, marriage is intended to reflect the glory of God. 
Psalm 19.1, for example, says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the heavens, this created thing, are meant to, in some way, demonstrate, display the glory of God. Romans 1.20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Psalm 104, 24 through 25, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. So we see in those verses that the creation, the world, the created order, is meant, designed by God, to reflect his glory. And so when we make the observation that marriage is a created thing, created by God, the same pattern emerges. Marriage exists to, in some way, put who God is on display. And so we find this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There are many nights where I have gone to bed after fighting with my wife (laughs) and laid there in darkness going, marriage is a profound mystery, right? But here what Paul is saying is that the mystery of the design of marriage, God's purpose for it, is revealed to us in the relationship between Christ and his church. That marriage is in some way meant to be like a living illustration of that union. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And for me, that is a picture, maybe not of what my marriage is, but what I think everybody knows their marriage would be great if it were like that. Right? We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I think if we want to understand this passage of Scripture and God's meaning for marriage, we must begin by understanding that marriage is inherently and deeply symbolic. It is intended to be a sermon that we live out in front of our children, our families, our friends, our co-workers and neighbors as a living illustration of the way that Christ cares for the church and how the church is to honor Christ. Jeffrey Bromley once said, As God has made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these are tough things to talk about. But Father, it's a very important conversation that we begin. 
that marriage is a created thing. And because it is created, Father, we humbly acknowledge that it is governed by your laws, your structure, your purposes. Father, even as I reflect back on my own failures in this area, and as I think about my friends here in this room who, many of them, Lord, carry scars because of marriage, Father, we are reminded that you are the God who shows us grace and mercy. You remember that we're made of dust. We're not defined by our failings in your presence. Those things are not what you think of when we come in front of you. And Father, we need not be saddled with them as we come into your presence either. Father, we want to understand marriage. We want to do these things well. Father, I pray that you would point us to a more excellent way in this area. Father, I pray for our marriages here, that, Father, you would... uh, protect homes. Father, I pray that you would soften hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to be mutually submitted to you. Father, this is a very gritty, real topic. And Father, I pray in the weeks ahead that you would give me words that would bring healing and hope, that would not cause further injury. Father, I hope that you would point us to the fullness of your heart on these things. Father, I pray that you would give us the capacity to embrace the fullness of your heart for marriage. And Father, I pray that we would image you forth in our homes. Father, I pray that you would help us to be real and honest with one another. And Father, I pray that you would do a work of creation Father, maybe what you have joined together has fallen into a state of disrepair. And Father, I pray that if there is a heart that is cold, that you would create in them a heart that warms to a new season. Father, if there is a heart that is burdened down with shame and embarrassment, Father, that you would create within them the knowledge that your mercies are new every morning. There is grace to cover every failing, that this is a new day. Father, if there are hearts that are unprepared for a coming trial, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would prepare them in these days for what is to come. Father, if there is a heart that is straying from affections to the one that you join them together with to another, Father, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, Bring that to an end. Father, we know that there is a cruel enemy who is targeting what you have joined together. And we pray, Lord, that you would protect those things and preserve them. Use these times of conversation in your word, Father, to effect your good purposes here among us and in our homes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.